The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. We are to be concerned for three evenings with the theology of Professor Eno Brunner, but the name of Professor Brunner can hardly be separated from that of Professor Karl Barth. Together, they are the founders of what is often called a dialectical theology, or as they themselves prefer to speak of it, the theology of the word. It is this theology of the word that we shall be concerned to examine with special emphasis on the work of Dr. Brunner. It will be our business, as best we can, to ascertain what the dialectical theologians, and especially Brunner, mean by this theology. Secondly, we shall be concerned to ask whether this theology of the word is really in accord with the word. It will not be feasible to take up these two questions in complete independence of one another, but naturally it is imperative that we try at first to discover what Brunner means in order then to test this theology by the standard that all historic Christians use, namely the Bible. Such an undertaking as we are here proposing may seem to be both bold and hazardous. For one thing, both Barth and Brunner are unusually erudite men. They have produced an astoundingly large and learned body of writings. Barth's church dogmatics is already a larger and a more comprehensive and a more profound piece of work than has ever appeared in the history of the Christian church. And Brunner's writings, too, are both numerous and profound. It is therefore with some trepidation that I stand before you to speak on this theology, but necessity is laid upon us. The influence of these men has spread far and wide. We simply must seek to understand at least their basic principles and their general point of view. Is this theology, as many say, really a turn to the theology of the reformers, of Luther and of Calvin? Is it really based upon the word as the object of revelation of God? Or is it, after all, another and more subtle form of modern theology? Is it, after all, another form of the subjective approach that has been current in theology under the influence of the greatest of modern philosophers, Immanuel Kant? It is only fair to begin with what seems to be at first reading uppermost in the minds of both Barth and Brunner. When they speak of their theology as a theology of the word, they then set their position self-consciously over against what they call the consciousness theology of modern liberalism. This consciousness theology springs in the main from the work of the father of modern theology, Schleiermacher, and from that other great modern theologian, Albrecht Ritzel. Both of these men are usually spoken of as having stressed the imminence of God in the universe as over against the transcendence of God above the universe. But, as already indicated, these men really did much more than that. 
from the point of view of historic Christian theology, these men, Sire, Macher, and Ritchell, and their followers, have set the pyramid of theology on its head. Instead of beginning with God as revealed in the scriptures and making God the point of reference in their thought, they began with experience, with human experience, and made man himself the final point of reference in their thought. When they then still speak of God, this God is for Sire, Macher, and Ritual a projection of the mind of man into the realm of the beyond. Kant has made the distinction between the phenomenal world, which man knows, the world of space and of time, because it is relative to him, and the noumenal world, which he does not know, but into which he may make his projections by means of moral, that is, non-intellectual postulates. It is this general point of view that underlay the theology of Schleiermacher and of modern theology in general. Quite properly, therefore, Bart and Brunner have spoken of this theology as consciousness theology. That's their general designation of it. It is that in Bart's earlier writings, it is that in Brunner's earlier writings, particularly in Die Mystique und das Wort, and it is that in Bart's first dogmatic, which is frequently spoken of as the black dogmatic, this current dogmatic is white in cover. That is to say, the consciousness of man, man, man as a law unto himself, man as autonomous, is the center of all consciousness theology since Schleiermacher's day. There is in this theology an avowed denial of the ability of man to know anything beyond the world of phenomena. If, in spite of this, our religious sense compels us to seek to penetrate that other world, we must do so by way of moral postulation, as men must do what is right because within themselves, as the final reference point, they know it to be right, they yet may posit a, in addition a God who will then reward those that have done right, so truth is truth in itself, and therefore God as well as man is interested in it, Truth must not be said to be truth because God says that it is truth. Now against this consciousness theology, which the great German skeptic Feuerbach called anthropology instead of theology, Bart and Brunner are calling men back to the word of God. Let us note in these three evenings, first, this evening, what this theology of the word says about the word itself. Tomorrow evening, what it says about the Christ, who, as they with us affirm, forms the center of that word, and Thursday evening, what it says about the word of this Christ in his atoning sacrifice for the sins of man. Very little needs to be said to prove that Brunner wants his theology to be a theology of the word. It is prominent in all his writings. His first great work on mysticism and the word was largely written in criticism of Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher's theology, says Brunner, was basically a theology of feeling. It was mysticism. And, quote, the most fearful devastation accomplished by mysticism is that it destroys the appreciation of the word, that it substitutes the idea of a revelation based on the music of feeling for the clear, clear light of revelation of the word of God. The instinct for the universe, the vision of the universe, striving for unity within the universe, resonance with the universe, 
becomes, says he, the ambition of man. Brunner would call men back from this identity philosophy, as he calls it, to the faith of the reformers. Then in addition to this negative attitude with respect to modern consciousness theology, Brunner sets forth his own view on revelation, on the relation of the consciousness of God to the consciousness of man, chiefly in his book called Revelation and Reason. Quote, Revelation always means that something hidden is made known, that a mystery is unveiled, but the biblical revelation is the absolute manifestation of something that had been absolutely concealed. Hence, it is a way of acquiring knowledge that is absolutely and essentially, and not only relatively, opposite to the usual method of acquiring knowledge by means of observation, research, and thought. Revelation means a supernatural kind of knowledge given in a marvelous way of something that man of himself would never know. And why is it that revelation thus stand, stands thus sharply over against knowledge obtained by observation and thought? The answer given is that in revelation we deal with personal confrontation with God. And this is not the case with our knowledge of ourselves and of the world. Knowledge of ourselves and of the world, knowledge of the space-time universe, which Kant spoke of as the phenomenal realm, is an entirely impersonal affair. In his epoch-making little book, Wahrheit als Begegnung, Truth or Divine Human Encounter, Truth as Confrontation, he sets these two kinds of knowledge in sharp opposition the one to the other. And in his dogmatic that he is currently engaged in writing, he applies these principles set forth in this little book to the major questions of theology. Just as Karl Barthes wrote that little book on Anselm, and later on tells us and in his introduction to the Kierkegaard Dogmatik that it is these principles that he set forth in that little book that he is seeking to apply in his great work on theology. So Brunner, in this little book, book, book of his, Wahrheit aus Begegnung, has set forth the chief principles according to which he is constructing now a three-volume work on theology. As we look briefly at this little book on truth as divine human encounter, we are made aware of the fact that the problem confronting us is far more complicated than at first we were inclined to think that it was. If we at first got the impression that Brunner is simply calling men back to the historic Christian position with respect to the word of God as over against modern subjectivism, then we shall on second glance undergo a considerable shock. It soon appears that Brunner is deeply conscious of differing not only with the consciousness theologians, but also with Roman Catholicism, and particularly also with traditional Protestant orthodoxy. In his mind, consciousness theology, Romanism, and Protestant orthodoxy are unable, because of their basic principles, to do justice to the gospel of the love of God in Christ because they reduce the personalistic confrontation, which is the essence of the true religion, to that of impersonal knowledge. For the moment, for a moment, the Protestant reformers, especially Luther, saw the fact that truth is a matter of personal confrontation of man with God. But it was only for a moment. What happened, asked Brunner, 
the paradoxical unity of the Word and the Spirit fell into pieces. The Scriptures became the gathering of divine oracles, the essence of divinely revealed doctrine. Men then have God's Word. In the controversy against Catholic principles of tradition, on the one side, and on the other the principle of the Spirit, of the individualistic enthusiast, together with a newly arising rationalist principle, the temptation could not be withstood to create a system of assurances, including confessional dogma, the notion of verbal inspiration, and the Bible understood as a book of revealed doctrine, and the paper pope stands over against the pope in Rome, quite unnoticed the position of dependence on the word of God is usurped by the appeal to pure doctrine, which in turn is made tantamount to the word of God, end quote. Bruner's criticism to the effect that on the orthodox view men think they have revelation is identical with that of Bart when he speaks of the blessed possessors. These blessed possessors think that they are elected and others are not elected, that they are saved and others are not saved. For them, the sacred confrontation of God with man is reduced to that of the I-it dimension, which is appropriate for facts in the space-time universe. When you're dealing with the material universe, you speak of it, and you have knowledge in that dimension. But they think, these orthodox think, that they have a direct revelation of God in nature and in history. They do not understand the indirect or dialectical character of all truth in the realm where God meets man in Christ. They are, in short, objectivists. They do not realize that truth is the confrontation of one subject with another subject. They ought to have learned from Kierkegaard that truth is subjective. But in saying that truth is subjective rather than objective, neither Bart nor Brunner want to turn to individualism and to emotionalism or pietism. There is, they say, a true objectivism that must be set over against the false objectivism of orthodoxy and an indiv or individualistic subjectivism, and there is also a true subjectivism that must be set over against individualistic subjectivism of piety. Both, but it is not and should not be for nothing that we also see clearly the dubious aspects of pietism, just as sub just this subjectivism. Hence our watchword can be neither no other than beyond orthodoxy and beyond pietism, biblical faith. When therefore Brunner asserts that, quote, the source and the norm of all Christian theology is the Bible, it is plain if we are not to force him into meet something that he ardently dislikes, to understand this in the orthodox sense as he understands it. The orthodox view, according to Brunner, does violence to the idea that in the scripture God meets us face to face. Orthodoxy makes of the I-thou encounter of, of God and man the I-it encounter of men with things. It therefore reduces God to an object of thought to a thing that it can control and possess. Orthodoxy is therefore, says Brunner, intellectualistic and non-committal. It is not existentialist and committal. It substitutes intellectual and non-personal acceptance of a set of doctrines 
for the personal submission to a holy God. The attempt must therefore be made to seek to understand as fully as possible what Brunner himself means by the scriptures as the source and the norm of truth. And in particular, it must be our purpose to see what exactly it is that differentiates his position according to his own way of thinking from the view of orthodox historic Christianity. We shall do this by seeking to show that the two principles at work, each in relation to the other, upon some of the chief doctrines or interests of the Christian faith. In the first place, Brunner is very certain that orthodoxy does no justice to the, to the uniqueness of the Christian gospel and its contents. Because of its doctrine of scripture as the direct revelation of God, orthodoxy does injustice to the mystery of the gospel to the fact that it deals with something that is wholly beyond and above human thought. The God and the Christ of orthodoxy are brought down, he says, to the level of something that is merely an extension of man. The qualitative distinction between God and man, which Kierkegaard has so vividly taught us to believe, is virtually denied when God is said to make himself directly available to the to man in scripture. God is then said to be revealed without at the same time being hidden. And in being revealed without at the same time being hidden, the God of orthodoxy is depersonalized and therewith reduced to an abstract principle. In the second place, and in contrast with the first, Bruner is certain that the orthodox view of scripture at the same time does not do justice to the unifying effect of the work of Christ as presented in the gospel. This fact, he thinks, comes to expression in the terrible because ultimate dualism that orthodoxy maintains between the elect and the reprobate, the saved and the lost in this world. It is therefore under these two headings that the materials to be employed may best be classed. Brunner's own principle will gradually appear for what it is in contrast with the view of orthodoxy as he himself described it. Speaking of the Bible, Brunner says its subject matter is the secret and at the same time manifest meaning of the Bible. The God who inclines himself toward man and makes himself present to man, Jesus Christ and his kingdom. If we should try to express this biblical truth, he says, by means of the subject-object antithesis, the way orthodoxy attempts to do it, we should falsify the whole gospel altogether. First, then, let us note how, according to Brunner, orthodoxy fails to conceive of the uniqueness of the Christ of the Scriptures. How could orthodoxy and thinking of the Bible as the direct revelation of God have any God that was greater than a thought of man? In revealing God, the Bible obviously has to use the language of man. It has to say, for instance, that God is eternal. But how could man think of eternity otherwise than in terms of millions and millions of years? I recall when I was a boy that someone attempted to illustrate what it means that God is eternal by telling us that there was a little bird that came once in a million years to sharpen its beak on a mountain of brass. And when that mountain was worn flat to the ground, then the first fraction of a second of eternity was passed. Well, obviously, that doesn't help you in the least. To indicate what eternity is, that just means it takes an awful long time. 
Or if man tries to think of how God can, of God, how can he, he can at best think otherwise than negatively of him? Man can at best say that God is not temporal, that God is not this and not that. But when he says this, he has a God that has no positive content at all. Such a God is the God of the philosophers, says Brunner. From them we should expect nothing better, for that is all that the method of philosophy can offer. The Christian revelation given, to us, given us to tell us of a true God is wholly different from the God of the philosophers, not the God of the philosophers, but the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That is the God our hearts do need. That is the God our hearts desire, as did the heart of Pascal. But orthodoxy does not give us such a God. The relation between God and man could not possibly be stipulated by any impulsion from the human side. God's relation to man has no sort of presupposition, he says, in relation of man to God. On this point, there is basic opposition between the biblical and the idealist, the pantheist, and the mystical thought of God. To be sure, at this point, Brunner is making a contrast between what he calls the biblical point of view and the idealist, the mystical point of view, on the other hand. But his whole contention is that orthodoxy does just what idealism, pantheism, and mysticism do, namely think in terms of the object-subject relationship or antithesis and then identify the revelation of God with what they have expressed in terms of this antithesis. And the result is that we then have no God that is any greater than the idea that man has of him. The true approach to the idea of God is therefore, says Brunner, quite otherwise than orthodoxy has conceived of it. The theologian must, to be sure, think in terms of the object-subject antithesis, quote, as a thinker, he succumbs, like every other thinker, to that fundamental relation of all thinking. He remains between the tongs, so to say, of the object-subject antithesis. But that which he thinks we comprehend is a subject, sui generis. That with which he deals when he speaks about the word of God and faith is precisely not thinking, but a discerning of truth of an entirely singular nature, end quote. In thinking, the subject-object antithesis is present, unavoidably so. But in faith, thinking is precisely what does not concern us. What is constitutive is in thinking that I think something. This distinction between the object and the subject finds no place in faith if our understanding of faith has the closest possible connection to the Pauline use of the term. Theologians, says Brunner, have all too often been oblivious of this most important distinction between revelation which is above and beyond all thought and thought which of necessity relativizes revelation when it seeks to express it. The Greek church fathers, for instance, when they were confronted with the name of God I am, reduced this to the speculative idea I am the one who is. Therewith, they turned about the intention of the biblical revelation as given in this name entirely. In giving himself that name, God meant to say that nothing can be said about him by way of human definition. He is the undefinable, the undescribable one. 
For a moment, the reformers, especially Luther, when he maintained that the scriptures is the word of God so far as it speaks or breathes of Christ, seemed to be aware of the fact that the Bible must always be only a witness to the revelation of God, but never that revelation itself. But soon enough, even Reformation theology, quote, simply identify the word of God and the word in the Bible. Therewith she returned basically to the error of Romanism. That is a point, I think, especially significant, that from Brunner's point of view, Protestant orthodoxy, in its view of the scriptures as directly giving us the revelation of God, has essentially the same principle that Romanism has. Another of the fearful consequences, those are Brunner's words, of the orthodox point of view of scripture is that it thinks of God statically. Basically, it cannot think of God as truly transcendent at all, for it thinks of him as the equivalent of human ideas. But when it nonetheless seeks to think of this transcendence, it has to think of this transcendence, and that means conceive of him statically. For all human concepts are static. Thinking is static, is that which deals with the eternal or the changeless, as the Greeks have taught us. And though, therefore, when orthodoxy thinks of God and thinks that by thinking of God, it really thinks of God, it is, from Brunner's point, basically mistaken. This implies, in the first place, that orthodoxy thinks of God impersonally. That's involved in thinking of God. All thinking is thinking impersonally. It can never do justice to the personal character of God. This implies, in the second place, that orthodoxy thinks of the three persons of the Trinity, so far as it seeks, in spite of itself, to deal with the personality of God, as on a par with one another. Orthodoxy says that God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equally God. They are on the level with one another, so far as their divinity is concerned. Thinking abstractly about the transcendence of God meant or implied the attempt to approach God the Father directly rather than through the Christ. Men speculated about the Trinity as something that by its could be known by itself, apart from the Christ. They failed to understand that according to scriptural witness, God is what he is in his essence, precisely in his movement of love toward men in and through Christ. Quote, theologians began to speculate about the internal relations of the person of the Trinity toward one another, apart from their relation to mankind in Christ. The age of orthodoxy appears like a frozen waterfall, mighty shapes of movement, but no movement. End quote. The orthodox principle of the identification of Scripture with the revelation of God always leads also to a wholly untrue idea of man and his universe. According to a true biblical point of view, says Brunner, quote, God places a creature face to face with himself, a creature who in having the power of knowing and acknowledging has a share in the essential nature of God, namely in being a subject, end quote. For only an independent creature can know and acknowledge. For this biblical idea of man as the counterpart of God, 
Orthodoxy substitutes the idea of causal creation. Orthodoxy does not realize that the category of personality stands completely over against that of causality. It was the mistake of Schleiermacher, says Brunner, that to think of Christianity in causal terms, but it was also and especially the mistake of Orthodox theology since the day of Augustine to substitute causal determinism for the biblical idea of the free personal creation. Quote, determinism through Augustine having found its way into the Reformation theology has a stoic and not a biblical origin, end quote. The Bible speaks of only one relation of God to man, in which man, by virtue of God's will and God's creation, has a decisively free, independent being, not only towards other creatures, but even towards God. God, who wishes to glorify himself and to communicate himself, desires to have man as his creature, who will respond to his call, to his love with love in return. For that reason, he desires to have man as a free being. But here, again, orthodoxy, since it thinks in the subject-object scheme, and since it identifies the word of Scripture with the word of Revelation, reduces man as a subject to an object in the universe. How could the person-to-person -person correspondence between God and man, which is the heart of the gospel, ever take, the place, take place on such a scheme as that? Not only is orthodoxy mistaken in reducing the person of man to an object of thought, it is equally wrong in its whole idea of general revelation. Since it thinks of the words of Scripture as being the words of God, without any qualification whatever, so it also thinks of man himself in his constitution, and of the world round about him as being in their very constitution a direct revelation of God. This entails again, says Brunner, a denial of the true biblical idea of revelation. It entails the idea that what man thinks in impersonal categories is directly applicable to God as the creator of the world. So that orthodoxy means when it says that God created the world that he causally produced it. Well, says Brunner, creation means no such thing as that at all. For in order to know the world creator, we must renounce all ideas of continuity between him and the world idea, even the moral law. Creation means that there is an absolute barrier between God and the world. Insofar as God is the creator and Lord of the world, the creator of the world who made it out of nothing, it is impossible to know him through the world itself." End quote the most explicit denial that there is any such thing as direct revelation in nature, which is that sort of thing, which we hear constantly also, of course, from the lips of Karabar. The God who can be known to the world is always, he says, the merely, merely a demiurge, the maker of the world, or the world's ground, its necessary being, as the schoolmen rightly expressed it. But no one of these expressions described the living God of faith, the personal God, who created the world because he willed it, and because he willed, end quote. Orthodoxy, in short, has no eye for the fact that the revelation of God always means at the same time the hiddenness of God, 
precisely that which constitutes the fact that God really addresses us in order to reveal himself to us. Another point at which the orthodox view which identifies scripture with revelation works havoc, according to Brunner, is in the question of sin. Here too orthodoxy thinks in ordinary, historical, and causal categories. It holds that decisive things take place in the realm of the ordinary historical. Yet the realm of the historical, says Brunner, is that of pure relativity. Nothing decisive can possibly take place in it. Orthodoxy holds, for instance, that sin can be traced back causally by the idea of original sin to a first man named Adam. Yet, though there is a sense, says Brunner, in which we can speak of personality as belonging to the sphere of the historical, in the religious sense, this is not at all the case. Accordingly, it is impossible to discover the nature of sin from anything that has taken place on the plane of ordinary history. Orthodoxy looks to the historical personality for the origination of sin. It can therefore never see sin in its awful character of rebellion against God, even when it uses such terms with respect to sin as to say that it is rebellion against God. It reduces them, he says, to the correlativities of history. The real source of sin lies in the mystery of personality, as this lies beyond the reach of physical, biological, and psychological phenomena. Quote, everyone possesses a mystery of personality, which is in no wise identical with his historical personality, with an individual human character which is visible to the historian or to the historiographer, and can be grasped by him. This mystery of personality lies behind all historical perception. It lies even behind all self-perception, end quote. How utterly important this point is. A true perception of sin is the prerequisite of a true perception of the Christ and of salvation that comes to man through the Christ. By reducing this super-historical mystery of personality to mere historical personality, orthodoxy, knows not at all the true meaning of sin. Accordingly, orthodoxy thinks that sin is a transgression of the law of God, and that this law was known by man, say, by Adam in paradise. It does not realize that the law is not the full, though it is a secondary revelation of God. And orthodoxy again thinks that man can derive his knowledge of sin from the law though in fact man can only know his sin after he has been forgiven his sin in the personal confrontation with the Christ. Now corresponding to this defective or even unchristian view of sin on the part of orthodoxy is the defective view of Christ and of his work of saving mankind. We shall speak of that more fully tomorrow evening. I'm just now interested in it so far as it shows that a false view of the Christ proceeds from this orthodox doctrine of identification of the revelation of God with the words of Scripture. Orthodoxy, because it identifies revelation with the words of Scripture, also identifies the historical personality of Jesus, of Nazareth, with the Christ of the Gospel. It identifies the Christ come into the flesh with the Christ after the flesh.
and it thinks that what it what this historical person taught in his lifetime and what he did in his death in ordinary history on a calendar day his suffering on the cross that as such and through a resurrection from the dead in ordinary history with the same body with which he died that he brought salvation to men it clings tenaciously to the empty tomb as direct evidence of his resurrection and it clings to the idea of ascension to heaven as upward movement through atmospheric space it holds even to a return of this Christ after the flesh at a final historical way day all this is due says Brunner to the fact that it holds to an identification of God's revelation with the words of scripture it involves a virtual denial of the true nature of human personality as super historical and with it a denial of sin and salvation in Christ as also super historical in all this orthodoxy says Brunner resembles older liberalism the liberalism of Schleiermacher and of Ritual but of course from Brunner's point of view orthodoxy is far more static far more impersonal has far less insight into the nature of the of the sin of man and of the gospel of the saving grace of Christ than even Schleiermacher or Ritual had now secondly let us look and see how orthodoxy according to Brunner also fails on the other hand to see the unity that is affected through Christ as it fails to see the otherness the absolute otherness the transcendent holiness and the undefinableness of God so also orthodoxy fails to see that that absolutely other God has come with absolute unifying effect into mankind and has saved men by doing thus by doing this in all this we have brought out only one side of the story we have shown that according to Brunner orthodoxy cannot see the uniqueness and with it the absoluteness of the Christ and of the gospel because it lives and moves and has its being in the realm of historical relativities it has failed to observe that there is an absolute contrast between the world of thought which is that of the impersonal and the world of observation which is that of the historical but not of genuine particularity and the world of true personality it has stuck and boggled at the world of the subject object antithesis and has been unable to use it as a field from which to take off into the free air of the truly personal but all this cannot be seen for what it really is unless and until it be seen to be but one side of the picture for in playing to the world of relativities orthodoxy at the same time clings things that it finds absolutes in ordinary history and in finding these absolutes in ordinary history it has no eye for the marvelous combining and healing work Christ thus for instance it holds that in God's plan for history God made absolute distinctions between the elect and the non-elect this is a grave violation of the nature of personality of the mystery of personality the Bible knows nothing of such a doctrine of election and of reprobation it speaks much of election but only of the election of those who freely accept the Christ by their own volition for God's holiness is to be sure a genuine reality says Brunner 
and his wrath not to be taken lightly, as he says old liberalism did. But his wrath and punishment are not his proper work. Freely accept the Christ by their own volition. For God's holiness is to be sure a genuine reality, says Brunner, and his wrath not to be taken lightly, as he says old liberalism did. But his wrath and punishment are not his proper work. Luther, as you recall, distinguished between God's proper and his improper work. They do not proceed, proceed from his essence. His essence is self-giving love. His wrath does not proceed from his essence. It is his secondary work. It is the work of his left hand, not that of his right. More will be said on this when we deal with, doctrine, with the doctrine of atonement. Then lest some among the Orthodox who themselves do not hold to the doctrine of election, but hold perhaps to an Arminian theology, let us say, might tend to agree with Brunner on this point of election, they ought at least to be aware of this fact, that Brunner's rejection of the doctrine of election in its classical form is based not upon the same ground on which Arminian theologians based it, base it, but is based upon the conception of personality, which, as already noted, also involves the rejection of the direct manifestation and revelation of God in nature and in history and in scripture, so that the Arminian theologian would lose his position just as much as the Calvinist would. If you look at Bart's, at Brunner's dogmatic, if you are an Arminian in your theology, as some of you may possibly be, I would say that you would find some comfort there. If anything, Brunner is certainly nearer to an Arminian position than he is to a Calvinist position. But it would be intellectual confusion of the first daughter to call him either. He is as definite in his rejection of the one as he is of the other. Brunner is particularly outspoken in his rejection of the historicity of the Genesis account. And the primary reason, as he asserts, for doing so is not that he has been compelled to do so by the discoveries of modern science. He speaks of those, and of course he holds to the evolutionary origin of man, as he holds to higher or negative biblical criticism, without any hesitation whatsoever. But when he speaks of his rejection of the historicity of the Genesis account, he is particularly expressive, even explosive, on this point, that he rejects this point not because he has been compelled to do so by evolutionary evidence, but because to hold to the historicity of the Genesis account is to destroy the gospel. It is to hold down the gospel, which is that which pertains to the realm of the personal, the realm of the ethical, Kant's realm of the noumenal, down to the causal, impersonal categories of ordinary history and necessary causation. It is to re reduce the ethical to the biological and the physical. Now, you may recall this aside, that when Karl Barth himself was in the Netherlands at Utrecht, and he was there lecturing, and he was asked by some of the men of the Reformed churches of the Netherlands, the Reformed churches being historically very orthodox, whether he believed in the historicity of the Genesis account, and back without any hesitation said, Ach, meine Herren, eine sprechende Schlange kann ich ja so wenig wie jemand anders glauben. Aber wollte nicht die liebe Freunde der sprechende Schlange lieber hören, was die Schlange gesprochen hat. Now, 
ladies and gentlemen, a speaking servant. I can't believe that that any more than any other man of intelligence can. But wouldn't it be better for these dear friends of the speaking servant, that is, those who held so tenaciously to the historicity of the Genesis account, wouldn't it be better if they paid somewhat greater attention to what the serpent said, irrespective of whether there was a serpent or not? Now, plainly enough, that means that both these men hold to what has historically been spoken of as the allegorical view of the interpretation of history. It is the all-important point for the understanding of Bruner and of Barr, and it is illustrated here specifically with clarity, as it seems to me, that history does not lie in the ordinary historical, and therefore man, the real Adam, is not that individual who lived so many thousands of years ago, irrespective of whether you can calculate the precise number of years, yes or no. The point is that that's not the realm, that's not the level on which personality lives and moves and has its being together with a critical philosophy to which he has self-consciously and clearly and persistently committed himself, he holds that in the realm of what Kant calls the noumenal, as over against the phenomenal, there's where true personal relations take place, there's where the person is free, the psychological person, the person of the empirical realm, the psychological ego, he is determined by causal laws. Now it is to to bring havoc into the situation, according to Brunner, to reduce the personal confrontation of God with man to, these I -it, to this I-it dimension of causal relationships. And that's, to him, the heart of what orthodox theology does. Well, this view of orthodoxy, then, and what, that is now the point of importance to note, it sets up barriers between men on a historical level, and nothing worse could possibly be done than that. Those who believe in verbal inspiration of the Bible, those who believe in an actual speaking servant, eine Sprechende Schlange, are said to be Christians, and those who do not so believe are said not to be Christians. Now the oppositions of men to the gospel, says Brunner, has a far more fundamental reason than can be expressed on the level of the historical. That scientists, and modern men generally are opposed to the gospel. And as fundamentalists think, they're opposed to it because they are forced, as they think, by the evolutionary evidence to disregard the historicity of the Genesis. That's not even touching the basic point from Brunner's point of view at all. In particular, orthodoxy cannot find a unifying Christ because it looks for the living among the dead, among men for that which is divine. How could the Christ after the flesh, whose very existence cannot even be established with certainty, be the basis of that faith which we know, in which we know whom we have believed, and know that he is able to keep that which we have committed unto him until that final day? And how could that Christ of ordinary history, the Christ after the flesh, even if his historical existence were established beyond the third adventure of the doubt, as such do anything for the salvation of mankind. We must not believe in the virgin birth. That, again, is not because the evidence for it in Scripture is not clear. That's true enough. He says the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, do not give us any foundation for believing in the virgin birth. But his basic reason for rejecting this historic teaching 
is not that question of, his, of biblical evidence, but it is much rather the idea that the idea of a biological virgin birth would once more bring down the categories of the personal to the biological, which is the field of the mechanical, of the causal, of the impersonal, the I-it dimension, and therefore would be to destroy Christianity and the Incarnation itself. In particular, orthodoxy cannot find a unifying Christ, therefore, because at every point it looks for the living among the dead, it looks for the divine among the human, it looks for the really personal in the realm of the impersonal. Even the teaching of Christ, therefore, in history as an historic personality is of no final authority for us at all. And Christianity is not concerned with biological miracles in the field of nature. But more than that, what a pity it is that orthodoxy clings thus to directly historical and to the direct identification of the revelation of God with Scripture. It misses the heart of the gospel. In fact, it destroys it. Herewith, we must conclude our discussion of the dialectical view of Scripture for this evening. It remains only to intimate briefly something of the problematics that this view entails. Brunner sets an absolute contrast, first of all, between the realm of the subject-object antithesis and the realm of personality. So much is to me indubitably clear. He is insistent on it. He repeats that point. He has done so in every one of his works. Now this involves, first of all, an absolute antithesis between that which, as men, we know by way of observation and thought, and that which we may know or may have feeling for by way of personal confrontation by means of moral, non-intellectual postulation. That is to say, the absolute contrast that Kant made between the realm of the noumenal and the realm of the phenomenal the latter being that of absolute causal determinism, including the psychology of man, and the realm of the personal, about which you could know nothing, but into which you projected the personality of God and of man, and therefore freedom, and therefore of the confrontation of the two. It is that absolute antithesis that is the first and main point in Brunner's approach to all the problems of theology. Now, this involves, therefore, an absolute antithesis, and we may, nay, we not an end, at, then at any point, argues Brunner, say that when we know something, that then in the same knowledge we know God in Christ and his personal address to us, we cannot ever say that we know God, but we know Christ, because what we know we cannot believe, and what we believe we cannot know. Brunner senses something of the fact that in making this absolute contrast, we are logically driven to hold that then we can know nothing of God or of Christ and of his work of salvation at all. To illustrate this point, let us think back for a moment to the early Greek philosophers. You recall how Thales said that all things are water. Now, the important point, it seems to me, is not that he said it was water rather than some other substance, but that he said that all things are water. That is to say, the monistic assumption that underlay all Greek philosophy, as the late professor A.A. A. Bowman used to say it, 
Greek philosophy assumes that all things are one, that all things have come out of the one, that all things return to the one. That basic monistic assumption which takes for granted that man and God are extensions, one of another. Now, then one said all is water, another said all is air, another said all is earth, another said all is fire. Then Anaximander, the first to introduce the notion of transcendence in order to obtain a principle that was beyond earth or fire or air or water, something that was not to be identified by sense, by observation, by thought, but that should serve nonetheless as an explanation of all this diversity. Well, how was he going to get this? It must not be water. It must not be air. It must not be earth. It must not be fire. It must be other, absolutely other, completely other. He called it the apeiron, the indeterminate, the featureless. Now the point is, of course, that he had to have it so absolutely other that it was absolutely useless as a principle of explanation of anything in this world. You can imagine for yourself this sort of situation. Suppose you have a gallon can of water and a gallon can of different liquids. I can't think of three other names just now. And then what kind of substance must it be if you're going to have a large tank from which you're going to be able to fill each one of these cans, this gallon can that has water in it, this gasoline and that benzene and that kerosene? Now, what kind of substance? Maybe those are too light. Suppose we make one gallon can to be whiskey. Now, what kind of substance must it be that shall be the one source of all this variety of stuff in this world? Now, that was the problem that the Greeks never were able to solve. It is still the problem that modern philosophy is equally unable to solve. The problem of how absolute diversity, which is assumed to be utterly unrelated, as the principle of diversity must be if you do not start with a historic Christian doctrine of creation as bringing into existence actually by causal production of the variety of things in this world, then your principle of individuation or diversity is admittedly, professedly, that of the utterly indeterminate, the apeiron or chance. Now that is, therefore, as Brunner speaks of it, the realm of the entirely single thing. It is the black spots in a dark December night in a coal bin which a blind man is seeking to discover. Now I'm not trying to be funny in the least. I'm just trying briefly to press the problematics that faces dialectical theology as it faces all modern thinking, modern existentialist philosophy. It is, on the other hand, the principle of unity, which is so formal that it must combine all things. Now, how are you going to string a string of beads if the beads are billions in number? No, infinite in number. And if none of those beads have any holes in them, so that you can put a string through them, you can't even find one bead in distinction from another bead. You can't count. The great British logicians, Bradley and Bosenkat, the idealist logicians, were certainly right, as it seems to me, when, I mean, right formally at least, when they said that the justification for counting is the ability to differentiate one thing from another. If you're at the South Pole and there's quite a large number of penguins and you want to make one penguin your pet penguin and you're going to clip its feathers a bit in order to be able to find it back and you come back a million years from now and say, where's my dear little pet penguin? You may have some difficulty in finding it. 
one of my former colleagues, had a famous story. He said that where he and his friend were out fishing. They were in the middle of the Pacific Ocean when a rowboat. And they had a bite, but they didn't catch it. And so they decided to go back the following day. And then a big argument developed. How were they going to identify the spot? Well, one said, make a mark on the water. Now, the other said, that's absurd. Make a mark on the water, the water moves. Let's make it on something solid. Let's make it on the rowboat. Now, don't you see? Was one theory, one whit, more intelligible and better, assuming that the fish was polite enough to stay put and wait for their return? Well, now, my friends, that is, as I believe, to be the actual situation confronting modern existential philosophy and the philosophy on which Brunner's thinking is based. I have the greatest of admiration for both Barth and Brunner as theologians for their erudition, and I am not in the remotest, I sense, seeking to ridicule them personally. I'm only trying to point out the seriousness of the problematics of modern approach to the solution of man's problems. They are utterly insoluble. It is no more possible than that you should be able to string beads which by definition have no holes in them and are infinite in number, and the string itself has no solidity to it. Now, that, as I see it, is the difficulty. Brunner, on the one hand, makes an absolute contrast between that realm of the personal, about which he says nothing can be known in history. History is the absolutely relative, and yet that absolutely other has to come into this absolutely relative, and when it comes into the absolutely relative, becomes absolutely relative, and then how could even the resurrection of Christ be a point of any distinction? of any appreciable, noticeable, recognizable difference from any other point in ordinary history. No more than is that spot on the Pacific Ocean, or rather an ocean without a shore. Now, I do not think that Brunner can solve that, and consequently it seems to me in all humility that the basic issue today in human thought is not dialectical theology as over against the so-called older liberal view. I do not feel that there's any basic difference between what is usually called old liberalism, the theology of Schleiermacher and Ritchell and their disciples. The basic difference is that between historic Christianity, it does not dust on the one hand, and liberalism plus dialecticism on the other hand. In other words, historic Christianity serves and worships God. Modern liberalism and dialecticism serves and worships man. Now that's hard judgment, but I'm willing to reason the thing out with any of you that may disagree in the kindest and most patient way I trust. I believe the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. Now then, the problematics today is simply this. Unless you are willing to presuppose that God, the God of historic Christianity, really made this world, so that his relation to this world is primarily positive, so that there's no difference between the world of the noumenal and the phenomenal, it's all God's personal confrontation with man. Then, to be sure, you will not exhaustively understand the relation of God to man, but you will at least have a foundation for your living, for your thinking, for your science, for your soul. easy way illustrate this fact. For instance, when your wife or your mother makes cookies, 
She has dough, and it's very amenable, and she can make elephants or kangaroos or tigers, whatever she pleases out of them, because she impresses the mold upon that dough, which is soft, and which will take any shape that you put upon it. Well, so Kant said, in effect, that the stuff of experience, the raw stuff, what William James called the buzzing, blooming confusion of experience, is raw and will take any shape. It's like water. If you put it in, an, in a tray and you put the tray in the refrigerator and you put this, these forms in it, you will get ice cubes. In other words, the ice cubes are the resultant of water, which will take any shape. It makes no difference to water what kind of form you put into it when it's water. But after it's frozen, it takes the shape which you have impressed upon it. You can make cubes of any shape or size. Well, so says Kant, when we talk about the world of space and of time round about us, the moles are within us. Space and time is subjective. Things out there are not temporal and spatial, but they are without any relationship whatsoever. They are raw stuff. Eddington, the great scientist, talks about a fisherman. He calls him an ichthyologist. I don't know why he couldn't call him a fisherman, but the ichthyologist goes out ichthyologizing. And then he goes out, and of course he needs a net. And he says, I need an objective kingdom of fishes. That is, the ocean somehow must have fishes in it. But then he says, for practical purposes, for my table, what my net can't catch isn't fish that is for me, fish that I can use. Well, you see, that comes straight out of Kant's critique of pure reason. Kant says the stuff of experience is like those fish. You can call them the object of kingdom of fishes, so to speak. They're out there, but they're not approachable. No more than you can ever reach the sun by going rapidly toward toward it on the surface of the earth. You may approach the horizon seemingly. You think the horizon touches the earth three miles from there, but when you're three miles further, it's still three miles further away. And so the idea of God as the creator, he says, is a limiting concept, like the horizon, which always recedes. You need that sort of notion because you have to strive to interpret experience and to get unity into it and get coherence, but you know perfectly well that you shall never attain it because you are dealing with raw stuff. And so the world may always in the end be quite otherwise than you anticipated it being. Elephants, so to speak, may turn into streetcars, streetcars into elephants. That is to say, the raw stuff of experience has no form in it until you give it form by the imposition of the molds of your mind, not you individually alone, but the universal human mind. Well, now that basic philosophy of Immanuel Kant has had a tremendous influence on modern thinking in general. As already intimated, it has had a controlling influence on modern science. The leading methodologists in the field of science work like Mr. Eddington, Dr. Eddington does, with the assumption that nobody knows ultimate reality, what the object of kingdom of fishes is like, but we all have to get along, row our boats in this world of chance somehow, and we have to do what the pragmatists say, get along as best we can, and think of the world of nature as objective, though it is only objective for us, because we don't know in any ultimate sense what nature is at all. 
Well, now it was this philosophy that influenced Schleiermacher, the father of modern theology, and he reconverted the whole approach to theological thinking according to this philosophy of Immanuel Kant. If Schleiermacher may be called the father of modern theology, I think Kant should be called the grandfather of it because his philosophy is of more far, of far-reaching importance than any other man in modern times on the whole of modern thought. Well, now that means that man is made the center, the end-all and the be-all of his own interpretation of life. He's made his own reference point. He still believes in God, but that God in which he now believes is a projection into that world of the noumenal, as Kant called it, of which he said that you can't know anything because what you know means that which you control, as it is frequently now called the I-it dimension, the dimension of causality and of determination or determinism, where you can predict what happens because it has to happen in a certain way. Now, when you therefore talk about a god, he is in that moral realm because in this realm you couldn't meet a person except that he would be explained out of existence. Modern psychology, by and large, is deterministic. I know there are some that are not, that are indeterministic, but anyway, modern psychology seeks to explain the human mind without any residue in causal terms. It seeks to explain why you are what you are by way of animal ancestry, by way of your childhood, your circumstances, and it can explain you, think, it thinks it can explain you that way exhaustively. Now, Kant said, personality, true personality, lies outside. You have to posit that. You can't know anything about it. Therefore, in his philosophy, quite apart from Christianity, he is said to have made room for faith. He says, I have limited science in order to make room for faith. Now, I think that has been one of the greatest sources of confusion in modern thinking. Believers in Orthodox, historic Christianity, really think that Kant made room for faith for their faith. Now, he made room for faith, but not for the Christian faith. That is to say, he took for granted that God did not create this world, that God did not create an Adam and an Eve. He has a book himself, Religion Within the Limits of the Pure Reason, and in it he sets forth what he thinks a man can believe about religion that is in accord with these, his critical principles in philosophy. And he says, Creation is a doctrine that we attribute to that God, but we can't say that it is something that pertains to this world, because the idea of causation, which the orthodox, historic Christian person applies to God and say God brought this world into existence without any stuff out of which to make it, so that he actually produced it. It was once not there, and then it came into existence by the, by the real activity of God. That sort of notion says... Kant is utterly inapplicable to God because the notion of cause is taken from the relations in the world itself. Cause and effect are mutually involved in one another. And if you therefore applied the word cause to God, you'd have to say that God needed the effect, the world, just as much as the world needed God as a cause. And so you wouldn't be getting a creator. You would only be getting a causal producer who is actually involved in this world. Now, if you then want a God who is not involved in the world, not tied down to it, not part of it, but who is really other, who is really beyond, then you have to get out of this whole world of causal relation, this whole world of I, the I-it dimension, 
and you must project him. That's the only way you can get him. Now, the best illustration that I can at least for the moment think of is when you on the 4th of July take your children out to a celebration and you see the skyrockets go up in the air. Now, when you are as old as several of us are here, then you know that they have been shot up from the ground. But the children, of course, they say, oh, because they think it has actually come right Sengrach von Oben, as Bart says, Revelation has come straight down from heaven. For the children, it actually comes from above. For you, it has gone up from the bottom and then comes from above. Well, I would say that the God of modern theology, of Schleiermacher, of ritual, and as I shall more fully seek to prove, of Karl Barth and of Brunner, is thus a projection on the part of a man, a human being, or the human being, which has assumed its own non-createdness, its own non-sinfulness, its own autonomy, its being a law unto itself, its needing no God as a real creator, but has nonetheless projected a God as an ideal, which is really nothing more than an ideal for man to strive after. Now, Jesus Christ, according to a philosophy such as Kant has, and according to Kant's own ideas, as he has expressed them in this book, is just such an ideal man. He is called the Son of God. But that doesn't mean that he was one with the Father and the Holy Spirit from all eternity, the way the historic Christian church thinks of him. But it means that this Christ is a projection, as God himself is a projection, of what we ought to be like. And then he says that Christ is love, and we ought to be loving people. We ought to love unconditionally, as that God, ideally speaking, loves unconditionally. Now, if you apply this whole approach to the doctrine of revelation, as we attempted to do last evening, then, of course, you have to throw overboard the idea that the Bible is a direct revelation of God, because in history there can't be any such thing as a direct identifiable revelation. You can't say this book, this Bible, is what God himself, its content is what God himself conveys to me about himself on his own authority. He knowing what he is, he tells us what he is. No, there can't be such a thing on the basis of this modern philosophy which has been adopted by Schleiermacher and Ritual and his school of thinking. There can only be what is called a revelation of factuality, but the interpretation of it is in the nature of the case relative because it is given to human minds and human minds are themselves, minds of human personalities are enmeshed in this spatial temple, phenomenal realm and consequently cannot be anything like media for the communication of any such revelation first place you couldn't know anything about such a God. If you could know anything about such a God, it would have to be by way of his communicating himself in this world where you are. If I have, am I, if I am very thirsty and I lift up my head and look for water and somebody is above the ceiling trying to give me some water, and he has a bucket of fresh water, we, will, we shall say, but there is a ceiling between him and us. 
down here. And when he pours it through that ceiling, the ceiling will say it's full of ink. It's a screen with all ink in it. Well, naturally, what you get, if you open your mouth, it will be inkified water, won't it? Of course it will. It can't be pure water. Because the moment it comes through that screen, it is by definition, it is polluted by the substance of that screen. Well, now, so, according to all of modern thinking, of course, and in that respect, as I tried to point out last night, Bach and Brunner, both of them, are in fullest agreement with historic modern thinking, with what is often called modernism or liberalism. It's not a term of opprobrium, it's just a term of description. Bart and Brunner in fullest agreement with all the modern liberal theologians has this philosophy of the human mind in common, which comes from Immanuel Kant's philosophy, that it is impossible for any revelation to come to it without being polluted when it comes. And therefore it is impossible for you in this world, for you as you are here situated in this circumstance, to know that you have any information about God, that God exists, what he is, and you couldn't know anything about Christ, because the Christ, if he is up there, and if he wanted then to speak to you, he has to speak to this through this very communication, which falsifies what he himself says about himself. And so you are just in a completely hopeless situation. You are in a globe, so to speak, and you can't get out of it. You've never been out of it. You have no knowledge of what is beyond it. You're just locked in a prison. There's no way of escape as far as knowledge of God or of human destiny is concerned. Now it has been maintained, and on, at first glance, it really looks as though the theology of Barth and of Brunner, the so-called theology of the word, is an attempt once more to turn back again to the historic Christian faith. Now, my responsibility is primarily that of setting the facts for you before you, as plainly as I know how, in order that you then may, on your own responsibility, do what you please about them. In other words, my first responsibility is not to try to convince you or to convert you to this, what I believe to be true. In fact, I do think, indeed, it is extremely important. It's a matter of life and death to me. But, after all, you are a responsible being before God. Now, my point is, you ought to realize, anyone ought to realize, that this theology of Karl Barth and of Emil Brunner is not a return to historic Christianity. On the doctrine of Scripture, nor on the doctrine of the person of Christ, nor on the doctrine of atonement, on any Christian doctrine. Now, I know that it does appear at first sight to be such, and the reason why it appears to be such is this, as I intimated last evening, that Bart and Brunner are so strongly opposed to Schleiermacher and to Ritchell and to the whole development of 19th century modern theology, which they have no words strong enough to depreciate. And you would really think that that's their enemy. But if you did, you would certainly be self-deceived. Because, you see, the real enemy of Karl Barth and of Brunner are his orthodox historic Christianity. Those are the ones that they really get excited about. 
The enemy, which is consciousness theology, their first enemy, so, so to speak, against which they militate, Schleiermacher, Rachel, modern theology. Well, what is wrong with them from Barth and Brunner's point of view? Well, they say what's wrong with them is that by means of human thinking, by concepts, and by means of observation, they think they can have a direct approach to God and a direct knowledge of Christ. And they think they find this Christ directly in history and that he's there, he was there, and that by historic research you can discover him there. And that though some extremists may deny that he has existed, yet moderate higher criticism admits that there was such a man named as, whose name was Jesus, historic personality of great moral influence in the history of the human race. But now you see, the point is this that the reason why Brunner and Barr are so strongly as they seem to be opposed to modern liberal, modern liberalism, that is that they, by means of concepts, by thinking about Christ and about God, think that they have knowledge of God and of Christ. But really, that sort of thing is most found and is found alone in the last analysis in any absolute sense in historic Christianity. It's historic Christianity which maintains that on the basis of the scriptures, as the direct revelation of God, we know who God is. Not exhaustively, God is altogether incomprehensible in the sense that he is not exhaustively penetrable. But he has manifested himself, he has created this world, and he's made man in his own image. And because he has thus made man, he has given him the ability by his thinking and by his observation of the facts which have their created character written upon them, so that every fact you see speaks of its creator and speaks so plainly of it, as Calvin puts it in his Institutes, that he who runs may read, and as Paul himself puts it, that a man is without excuse if he doesn't find in nature the creator of nature. Now, Bart says nature is a chaos of voices, literally quote. Brunner says nature is ambiguous. There is no clear revelation of God in nature. Bart Brunner is quite inconsistent with himself. On the one hand, he says there is some sort of revelation in nature, and on the other hand, he says there is no revelation of God in nature. On the other hand, also, both of them say there is no direct revelation of God in the Scriptures, and yet they say in the Scriptures, there and there alone, must we find God speaking to us. Now, it is therefore orthodoxy, simple historic Christianity, that is the real, constitutes the real enemy of dialectical theology because the center of all orthodox historic thinking, particularly as it has come to its best expression in the Reformed faith, the, the theology of John Calvin, that theology centers and focuses, of course, upon God, that God, the sovereign God, out of his will, not because he had to, not because there was any overflow of his being, but simply because in his sovereign disposition he determined to, that God, this God, created the world. Out of nothing, there was no stuff out of which he made it. Plato has a God who needed substance. When I was a boy in Holland, I had to get a pair of new wooden shoes one time. And so I went, as I was told, to go to the wooden shoe maker who made wooden shoes. Now the wooden shoemaker needs wood to make wooden shoes with. And he couldn't make any wooden shoes without wood. Well, Plato's God can't make a universe without raw stuff. You have to have material, as all of us do, if we're going to make anything. Plato also needed 
Plato's God needed.